0: This talk is brought to you by the Thomistic Institute. For more talks like this, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. I want to talk tonight about Thomas Aquinas' account of what truth is. And uh, if you haven't yet gotten one, there should be handouts somewhere available for you, I believe right over there. So if you don't have one yet, maybe just raise your hand and uh, John? Yes. John can bring them to you. Uh, Wonderful. All right. Well, you guys are familiar with what Pilate said to Christ, or at least one of the things Pilate said to Christ, not the only one. But he asked, what is truth? And if you know the context, well, you know he wasn't asking a philosophical question. But that doesn't have to stop us from asking a philosophical question with the same content. What is truth? And what determines truth? And what is it not? These are the sorts of questions I want us to talk about tonight and then have a couple practical applications from the talk for our lives too afterwards. So look at your handout. On the front, I start with a, a question. We have, what is truth? And let's start first by what it's not. If we can narrow down some things it isn't, we can get closer to what it is on our way. So what if you just think there is no truth? Might be, might be the case that there is no truth. But when you think about that claim, there is no truth, something goes awry, don't you think? Like there's a problem with saying there is no truth. What's the, anybody see the problem? Some of you're smiling at me, which makes me think, yeah, you do see it. But if I say to you, there is no truth, your first response should be, Dr. Paul, what about that claim? You just said a claim to me. The claim was there is no truth. Is that claim true? And then I'm sort of in a pickle, right? If I say, "Uh, no, that is not true. Then you say, well, why are you you telling it to me? Like, you can assert all sorts of falsehoods. Why did you choose that one? Why didn't you say 2 plus 2 is 5? So I don't want to say it's not true, if that's my position. But if I say it's true, I'm immediately contradicting myself, right? I say there is no truth except for the one I just told you. And brag at that one for a moment, and all the rest don't turn out to be true. And there you think, well, that's kind of like special pleading, isn't it? Like, your favorite one gets to be true, but all the rest of them have to be false. So the claim like that, a claim that seems to refute itself, there's a technical $5 philosophical term for it. Uh, it's just being self-referentially incoherent. When referred to itself, it's incoherent. It's like being a hypocrite, sort of, for a statement. You know, if your mom tells you don't smoke cigarettes and then you see her walking the dog and smoking a cigarette, you're like, mom, you just said don't do that thing, that you're being a hypocrite. If a proposition says there is no truth, it's doing something similar, isn't it? It's, It's presenting itself as true and also claiming there is no truth. So it can't be the case that there's no truth. The next statement then, or the next question then, is what determines the truths that there are? If there are some, what accounts for it? And here are some different views people might have. I have on your sheet there, numbers one through four on the left of the front. Page one, it's labeled. Well, maybe you think there are some truths and they're determined by mere belief or opinion. They're determined either individually, like what you believe is true for you and what I believe is true for me. Or communally, like what my community believes is true for us and what your community believes is true for you. And I think if we, if we examine that, we won't find ourselves having a favorable view of that claim either. And here's why. It sounds good. It sounds in a sense, humble to say I have my truth and you have your truth and your truth is just as valid as my truth. But when you think about it, you don't you don't really think that. So it can't be the case that if my if I or my culture think the sun is pulled around the earth by a God in a chariot and you think it's not, it can't be the case that the sun is both pulled and not pulled by a God around the earth. If I think the world is flat and you think it's not, the world isn't gonna be both flat and non-flat. So it can't be the case that truth is just determined by convention, whether individual convention or societal convention. There's something deeper going on than mere, we all think it, so therefore it's true. How about power then? Maybe power determines what's true. You might have heard of the claim, might makes right. This is like might makes right, but instead of right being moral, which is typically how that phrase is used. Right means correct, might makes correct. Here too, you probably think it's false. I mean, even if someone came and vanquished us all and brought a new ideology to us that we all had to affirm or perish, that alone isn't sufficient to make the ideology true. There's a question, you know, surely we have to believe this to live, but is it the right thing to believe? Does it get reality right is a question we can ask. So power alone isn't the arbiter of truth either. How about stipulation or definition, a third way that you might think of truth going? Sometimes it is. Like when I say a bachelor is an unmarried man, or a human is a rational animal. There, I can be stipulating what the term bachelor means. When I say bachelor, I mean an unmarried man. When I say human, I mean a rational animal. And in that sense, there's truth to the claim that some truth is stipulated or definitional truth. But not all truths function like that. Like here's a truth, there's more than 20 people sitting in this room and that's not made true by definition or stipulation. I don't just stipulate the number in here is 20 and then I can move forward like that. 20 has a meaning beyond the stipulation that I give to it. The point then is this. While some truths are determined by stipulation or definition, surely not all truths are. So that's not going to work either for being that which determines what's true. How about the last one? I hear this one sometimes. What if it's science that determines what's true? Now, don't get me wrong. Science is an excellent discoverer of what's true. But I'm not asking us what discovers truth. I'm asking what makes things true, what determines truth. And here, it can't be that science alone is the only thing that determines truth. I mean, think of all the things that you know that are true that you didn't learn through any scientific method. So maybe you know that you have an armpit and I bet you a dollar you've done no experimental searches to determine whether this is true. If you have, pick a different example. The point though is this, Uh, very many truths that we know aren't determined by means of the scientific method. And in fact, this last claim, the claim that science alone determines what's true, faces the same problem we saw for the very first claim, there is no truth it seems like it's self-referentially incoherent. Because if science determines what's true is true, it better be determined to be true by science, otherwise it'd be a counterexample to itself. You see what I mean? If there is no truth is a counterexample to itself, because the person that's putting it forward is a truth. So likewise, science determines all that's true, better be determined by science, or else it's a counterexample too. But I defy you, to find me the scientific study done by the scientific method that came to that conclusion that all truth is determined by the scientific method as far as i know there isn't one in fact it's hard to think of what you would even do to try to do a scientific experiment that would come to that conclusion i mean say the national endowment for the sciences gave a couple wheelbarrows full of money to your university to william and mary and just <laughs> brought them in and said we need a scientist to figure out whether this hypothesis is true and the hypothesis is all truth is determined by the scientific method what would your, I mean, your president would be ecstatic, no doubt, but what would you do next? What, you can build a lab. What would you put in the lab? I mean, Bunsen burners will be of no avail for this question. Graduated cylinders wouldn't be of any avail. Now I think we've reached the end of all of my scientific instrument knowledge. Uh, particle accelerators is another one. That's not going to help you figure out whether all truth is determined by the scientific method. It looks like it's in principle not the sort of thing you could even come to determine by the scientific method and so while there is truth it's not the case that all truth is determined by mere stipulation or by power or by what my group says is true or by science alone something else must be the determiner here and i want to put a just a pin in that just for now we'll come back to it later what's the thomistic view of what determines what's true but i just want to show that all the things i've talked about so far they fail at giving us a good general answer to the question, what determines what's true? So that's the moral I draw on that front of that page. I don't, again, just to reiterate, I don't mean that no beliefs determine what's true about some beliefs. That's a weird way of saying it, but here's what I mean. Like how many people believe in the resurrection of the dead? Well, if it's 40%, I don't even know. But if it's 40%, that's determined by what people believe because it's a claim about beliefs. So it makes sense that it's determined by beliefs, and claims about the military's power is determined by the military's power. So some things are determined by power and some by uh, by opinion, but the point is not all. Not all are determined that way. Okay. The next step I want to take is just thinking of different ways we talk about truth, what we mean by the term true, and seeing different ways that truth functions in our language. So I've got those four examples there again on page one the left-hand side of the front of your handout so one example is what you might think of as propositional truth the truth of a claim so here I've got the claim the earth revolves around the sun and that claim is true two plus two is four that claim is true there's more than 20 people sitting in this room that claim is true so all of those are one type of truth call it propositional truth because it's about the truth of a statement or a proposition. But that's not the only way we use the word true. Sometimes we say things like, John, not Judas, is a true friend. And there we're saying something not about a statement but about a man. We're saying that guy is a true friend and that other guy is not a true friend. So sometimes we use the word true about a statement and of course false about other statements. And sometimes we use the word true about a thing, like John the friend. Or here's something I recently learned in a uh, bike repair shop. I have to true my bicycle wheel. Anybody familiar with that phrase, to true a wheel? I had never heard of it before, but it means to bring it it back into a a circular shape. I got hit by a car on my bike, fine. Actually, my daughters were there when I got hit by a car and they were very scared. And um, it's in retrospect, it's not that bad that they were there. They learned lots of bike safety that one day with like a, a real example of what happens when someone is not looking when they're driving. But I digress. The point is this: I was at a bike shop, getting my wheel repaired, and the guy said he had to true the bike wheel, which is just to get it into conformity with the his idea of what a circle is. Okay. Last example. I might say something like, "I'm truly impressed." And there again, I'm not talking about a statement. I'm not talking about what you do to a wheel. When I say I'm truly impressed, I'm saying something is real or authentic about my mental state. Like, I'm not faking it. I really am impressed by what happened. So those are four different ways you might talk about truth. And I want to look at each of those a bit during this conversation with you guys. So the first one I want to talk about is called Truth as Authenticity. It's one way of using a word like true. So when I say, and this is the bottom of page one, when I say a true friend or truly impressed, I mean it's authentically or really impressive, or he's authentically or really a friend, or he's not faking it, or he's not being a trickster. So there the claim is just, sometimes we use the word true to mean that this thing really is the way that it presents itself as being. True friend, truly impressed, It's like a synonym for really or honestly or I promise or something like that. So that's one way we use the word true. and We use it of things when they really fulfill the concept we have in mind. A second way is on the top of page two of your handout. This is a more metaphysical sense of the word uh, word true. It's called the transcendental truth. You might have heard of the phrase or the word transcendental before in a philosophy class. The transcendentals are concepts that are applicable to everything that exists, no matter what sort of thing it is. So one example I have on the sheet is being, the word being, the concept being, is a transcendental. Since anything that exists, no matter how it exists, is, it has being. So it's a word that's applicable to anything that is, no matter what sort of thing it is. Now there's a sense of the word true that likewise is applicable to anything at all, just in virtue of the fact that the thing exists. So for instance, as long as something is graspable or understandable in some way, we can conceive of that thing as true in some sense or other. John is a true friend, he's graspable under the concept of friend. I'm truly impressed. I'm understandable under the concept of being impressed. Sometimes though, things are just understandable generally. We don't mean like in this specific way or that specific way understandable. We just mean able to be understood in some way or other. And in that sense, everything is understandable in some way or other. I mean, I just said that everything is understood as being or existing. So. Everything is understandable in some sense. Even God has revealed himself to us in certain ways. We can understand God sometimes analogously, sometimes explicitly, like how he isn't. God isn't material. That's a way we grasp or understand something about God. Sometimes analogously, like a loving father. He's not exactly like my father. I mean, he didn't beget me the same way my father beget me. But he's loving like a father is loving. And that's a way of understanding him. So anything that exists at all is true in that respect, able to be grasped in some way or other. And so here's some insights about these. Both of those are tied together. That is truth as authenticity and transcendentally true. Are both tied together in the following sense. They apply to things, like John is a true friend, Dr. Paul is truly impressed. They apply to things when those things are in conformity or able to be conformed to how we think. There's like how I think, and there's how the world is, and sometimes how I think is conformed to how the world is, and sometimes it's not, sometimes I'm deceived or mistaken. So these two senses of truth look at how things in the world are and asks whether those things are really properly understood in a certain way. But it's true applied to a thing, not true applied to a statement or a proposition. A more common usage of the word true and now we're circling back to like the earth revolves around the sun. A more common sense of the word true is what I called earlier propositionally true. This is about our thoughts or our statements or our beliefs, representational ideas we have that say the world is a certain way. So think about those for a bit on the subject of something like propositional truth we're talking about statements and assertions. And here, Thomas Aquinas has some insights that he can give us, and he gleans these from Aristotle. So look at the quotation on the bottom of page two, the right-hand side of the front of your handout. There, Aquinas writes in his commentary on Aristotle's metaphysics, he writes, the definition of the true and the false. Truth exists when one says that what is, is or that what is not is not but falsity exists when one says that what is is not or that what is not is now aquinas has a, a gift of being very terse with his language right? using very few words and getting a lot out of it um, and not everybody including myself has the ability to just read dense Thomistic prose and be like oh yeah i totally get it So if you look at the next page on page three, you'll see a a breakdown of those four things he just told us. He says something is true when it does one of the following two things, one or two there. When it says of what is that it is. That's a way of being true. And so for examples of that, we can say things like dogs exist. That says of things that are, namely dogs, (laughs) that they are. Or Fido is warm-blooded. That says of the thing Fido that it's a certain way, warm-blooded, and it is, in fact, warm-blooded. Or you can say of what's not, that it's not. So, for instance, you might say there are no dodo birds, and that, of course, is true because you're saying there are none, and, in fact, in the real world, there are none, as far as we know. Like, there could be a hidden enclave of dodo birds on some island we don't know about, and then we'd say, oh, I'm saying of what is that it's not, so I'd be saying something false here. But as far as we know, there are no dodo birds and so it's an okay thing to say. Likewise I say FIDO is not scaled and that is true. Why is it true? I'm saying of what is not a scaled FIDO that it's not. So that's two different ways of saying true things with two examples for each of them. How about the other way? Well. Think about when we say something is false. Look at what Aquinas said about that again. So something is false when it either, this is three, says of what is that it is not, and examples there, I just take the first ones and negate them. So there are no dogs, says of something that is, namely dogs, that they're not, so it's false. Or Fido is not warm-blooded, says of something that is, the, the warm-blooded dog in the house, that it's not the way it is. Or it says of what is not that it is. It says, for instance, that there are dodo birds and we know that there aren't, so it'd be false. Or it says that Fido is scaled. That's saying of something that's not a scaled Fido, that it is. So you can think of it sort of like polarities. You know, you can get the polarity right or you can get the polarity wrong, where the polarity is like the statement and it's a relation to the world. The statement says the world is the way the world is, then it's true. The statement says the way the world is not the way the world is, and it's false. Here we've got two different concepts working together. We've got a concept of saying what is. So these are like under, maybe halfway down page three. We've got the concept of whether something is or is not. That's telling us whether reality is a certain way, how the world is. And then we've got two there on your sheet. Saying that something is or saying that something is not you've got on the one hand how the world is on the other hand how it's Represented by our thoughts or our beliefs or our statements And you get truth when you have when you have a Connection between the two you say how it is and it is that way you say how it's not and it's not that way In fact Aquinas says Thomas says in his Summa Theologica, he says, Truth is defined as a conformity between intellect and reality. And we can see how that is. How truth is a conformity of intellect to reality. And notice again that this, this conformity can go two different ways. You can see the very same relation between the proposition or the assertion and the way the world is. You can see it from the world side or you can see it from the statement side. If you take that same relation, just like you can see father of and son of, those are the same relations seen from two directions. I have a son named Henry. You can say Henry is the son of Dr. Paul, or you can say Dr. Paul is a father of Henry. And there you're naming the same relation that we bear to each other, just from two different directions. So likewise here, we can think about the conformity that the thing in the world has to the concept like John Conforms to the concept friend and so we could say John is a true friend that guy over there is truly a friend Or the proposition the earth revolves around the Sun seen from the other side conforms to how the world is You see what I mean? So you can have the same relationship of conformity between the world and our thoughts and just see it from two different directions seeing it from the world side as uh truth as authenticity or transcendental truth or seeing it from the statement side seeing it as propositional truth it's the same relation just viewed in two different directions okay when i started i asked the question what settles or determines what's true and there i gave four different options and said why i don't think any of them really do the trick of telling us what determines or settles what's true. I think if we look at what Aquinas says here again, I mean it's no surprise I keep going back to uh, to Aquinas. Some of my students have put on my evaluations, he has a crush on Thomas Aquinas, and intellectually I suppose that's true. So uh, going back to Aquinas, I feel like I can because this is the Thomistic Institute. If there's anywhere I can go and make my leading Thomistic heart be known to the world, it's the Thomistic Institute. But here's what Aquinas says. He says, Truth, which is in the soul, but caused by things, does not depend on what one thinks, but on the existence of things. For it is because a thing is or is not that a statement is said to be true or false. So what determines what's true or false? How the world is determines what's true or false. How reality actually is out there determines what's true or false. That's what does the trick. He says here, truth is in the soul, and here all he means by that is, for Aquinas, your your soul uh, houses, in a sense, your intellect. And it's your intellect that makes these correspondences and makes the thoughts that either correspond or not with reality. And so when he says truth is in the soul, he just means like, it's in your mind when you think the proposition, and then that proposition is true or false based on how the world is. But it doesn't depend on what one thinks. He's here denying that first view we saw where truth is based merely on opinion. He's denying that and saying truth is based on how the world actually is out there. So if the, if the invaders come and enforce a new ideology and you have to believe it or perish, you can still ask, does it get the world actually right? That's a different question. You might, one question is, should I at least give it lip service so I don't get killed? A second question is, is the thing I'm giving lip service to true? And of course, those are different from each other. And so power alone can't be what dictates what's true or false. OK, I'd like to point out now, after that whirlwind through Aquinas' thought on what truth is, some practical applications we can have for this. So first, I find this sometimes in my students. I I was saying earlier, Margaret in the car, from coming back from the airport, I was saying I teach this class called Christian Mysteries from a Philosophical Viewpoint. And the class looks at mysteries like the Trinity and the Incarnation, says here's what the church says about those things. Just reads doctrinal stuff on what the church actually affirms second step is finding the very best arguments we can find against the stuff the church says so the church says christ is both god and man well it seems like anything that's god is impassable unable to be causally affected immutable and eternal and outside of time and all the other magnificent features and anything that's man lacks those things isn't unchangeable isn't not causally affectable is inside of time isn't omnipotent so it looks like there's at least one thing if the church is right, that's both mutable and immutable, temporal and outside of time, necessary and contingent, all powerful and not all powerful. And that sounds like a bunch of contradictions in a row. What you gonna do about that? So that's what we're talking about actually starting next week in the class. What you gonna do about that one? So the, the point is this, in these talks, we find what the church says, we find the very best objections we can find, and then the, it'd be terrible if I stopped there. And so the church is super wrong. Uh, At the next step is, what are the best responses we can find? What have philosophers throughout the ages, including Thomas Aquinas, said to these philosophical objections? Now, what I find with my students is some of them are a little bit scared at the beginning. They're apprehensive to open the book and look. And I think in part, it's because they've been forming their lives around something for a while now, and they don't want to see that it's wrong. They're kind of scared to see that the truth is against their view. And what I like to see in this class is after doing this for 14 weeks, they are excited to find more. Like, Let's find another objection. What's another good one to consider? And they're not looking for dummy objections, like not going to YouTube and seeing what like, dumb people on YouTube say. Did you know that on YouTube people say all sorts of false things? It's unbelievable. Anyway, so they're not going there. They're going to like, what are philosophers and theologians saying about these things? The point I'm trying to make is this, we can be wary of trying to figure out the truth because we're scared of being wrong. And well, truth I think isn't something to be wary of in that respect. All truth, any truth at all, as long as it's true, is gonna be in conformity with your cherished beliefs, if you're Catholic Catholicism, provided that the Catholic beliefs are true. That is to say, As long as the Catholic beliefs are true, you will not find anything that's shown to be true by science. Maybe they're mistaken about something, or maybe you're misunderstanding it, but you won't find any truth settled by science which is inconsistent with the truth of the faith, provided again that the faith is true. The point is that no truth contradicts truth. And so if you've got the truth, you don't need to be scared about the other things. The other things take care of themselves. And sometimes you won't be able to discover what's wrong with the argument. I've been this, I'm a professional philosopher. I've been there myself. I see the argument and I think, oh, that looks good. <laughs> uh, but it's against the view that I believe. What am I gonna do? And what I do there, if I can't figure it out, is I go knock on the doors down the hallway where my colleagues are. I go, hey, can you, you have five minutes to help me figure out what's wrong with this argument because it says something I believe is false. And he's like, ooh, I believe that too. Let's figure it out. So sometimes you won't do it alone. That's fine, nobody said you had to. You could do it with others. The point then is this. As Aquinas says here, here's another quote from Aquinas in the Sheep. Every truth by whomsoever spoken is from the Holy Ghost as bestowing the natural light and moving us to understand and speak the truth. Elsewhere they say things like this, all truth is God's truth. And so there's no need to be fearful of the truth. The truth will not be a thing that shows Catholicism to be false. I'll say it last time and I'll stop saying it, provided it is in fact true, providing Catholicism is true. So one thing I like about this is it helps me um, be intellectually courageous, and I think I see it help my students be intellectually courageous as well, seeing this insight about how truth is and what truth does. Okay, a second practical insight that I want to draw our attention to here is there's a passage, number in the Gospel of John where, John where Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And here we can ask, which sort of truth is this? You know, I gave those four options of what truth is at the beginning, different ways we use the word true. What sort of true is this? and my the way i like it best you can read it a couple different ways but the way i like it best is that he's the truth and by him we're trued trued like a bicycle wheel is true and the idea here is this when you take your bicycle wheel to the shop and it's got a warble in it what the guy does actually i don't know what he does he did a bunch of stuff i wasn't really looking but one thing he does is he has his own conception of what a circle is he's got some tests for circularity like He'll spin it with a can next to it. If it bumps the can as it goes around, it's got a warp in it. So he's got a bunch of tests he does. And his goal is to get this thing he's working on, the bike wheel, conforming to his image of the exemplar in his mind. The exemplar he has is circularity. and He's trying to get the bike wheel conformed to his thought of circularity. That's his truing of the wheel. Well, in what sense is Jesus the truth? Well, for us. He's like the conception of the bike wheel, the conception of circularity in the thought of the mechanic doing the work. But he's so much more than that too. So in one sense, he's, he's the thing we're conformed to, to be most truly ourselves. Just like the thought of circularity is what the bike wheel is conformed to, to be most truly a wheel. <laughs> That's one way that they're the same. But I think the similarity ends there, and for our favor, and for this following reason. Circularity itself doesn't help the mechanic out. Circularity is not his beloved friend. And so in a sense, it's just the mechanic working on his own, making that wheel to be a certain shape. But that's not how it is in the Christian life at all. For us to be true, to be made in conformity with Christ, for that to happen to us, It's not us on our own or us with some natural mechanic doing jobs and working on us. It's not just that at all. We have divine aid and grace to get there too. And we have real deep personal friendship, Uh, personal friendship with God. It's scandalous to think that we can have that. No longer slaves, I call you friends is what he said. And you might think I was getting off pretty well with respect to you being a slave. And now I'm exalted to the status of friendship. It's more than I could ever uh, desire, or more than I can ever earn on my own. And so Jesus is that to which we're trued when we're conformed to the proper image of what humanity is supposed to be. And to be true in that sense, to be conformed to the image, involves not merely the mechanic doing the job, like on the wheel, but it involves the aid and the grace of our dearly beloved friend, too, which is more than the wheel can say to the mechanic. So those are two key insights. Don't be afraid of where the truth will lead because the truth will lead to the truth. It can't lead anywhere else but truth. And truth can't contradict truth. And secondly, what a joy it is for us to be able to be true, to be conformed to Christ, and to be so by means of his aid and grace and the aid and grace of our beloved and dear friend. Okay, thanks. We have time for questions, I think now too. It's one over there, I think. Yeah. So, so Thomas's definition of a propositional truth reminds in a lot of the principle of non-contradiction. Yeah. Great. Thank you. So, the principle of non-contradiction. Has anybody heard of that in maybe a philosophy class that you've taken? Some, Some of you? Yeah. Good. So, the principle of non contradiction says that no statement or assertion or proposition, no statement can be both true and false at the same time in the same respect. So, there are some statements that are true and false at different times, like two hours ago I was hungry, and now after this delicious meal that Margaret got me, I'm no longer hungry. So, that statement changes truth value over time, no contradiction there. But what if it were true at the same time? I'm hungry and I'm not hungry. Well, maybe I think I'm not hungry and one of you thinks I'm hungry. We both have the phrase, I am hungry, and you think it's true and I think it's false. Well, those are in different ways, aren't they? Because the I refers to you and one and me and the other. The principle of non-contradiction says that as long as you keep all the terms meaning the same thing throughout, so the I's don't do a little switcheroo between me and you in the claims, as long as it refers to the same thing throughout, it can't be both true and false at the same time. In the same way. And I think you're right to point out that there's a close parity here between what he says about truth and that view of non contradiction. And the idea, I think, is this for Aquinas and for Aristotle and almost anybody I can think of in the Western philosophical tradition, you can't have a true contradiction. And so it can't be the case that there are and there aren't dodo birds. You see what I mean? And so it can't be that you. It can't be that you have both. It's either one or the other, and how you get one or the other is defined here, as Aquinas gives it to us, by whether or not, in fact, those things exist. Yeah. Thank you. Um, yeah. Yeah. Please. on so, um, Christological note there. Yeah. Um, just want to go back to the exchange between uh, Christ and Pilate in John 18. Yeah. What might be the, I guess, ontological significance of that exchange? How does it tell us about the history of our salvation? Um, Yeah. Oof. So you started with an easy one, and then I thought I was comfortable, and then you're like, (laughs) hi-yah! I guess, here's what I think about that. Uh, I don't know if it's salvific, but it tells us something about the nature of power, at least. So remember when Pilate says it, like I said earlier, He's not making a philosophical point. He's not inviting Christ to enter into a dialogue concerning the nature of truth there. The way I read it, when he says what is truth, it's sort of like a flip into like what does that matter sort of thing. Like who gives a crap about that right now? That's not what matters. So what is truth? You know, like well, who cares about that? So I think it's showing us the importance of, uh, well, not being a pilot in the situation, not being a person who cares more about uh, political dynamics. Than the truth of the thing because it's very easy to get wrapped up in a cause and to work well for the cause even a valiant cause not that his was but even a good noble cause but to do so in a way that you lose your very soul in doing it so it's, it's important for us to be mindful of the question what is truth if it makes you say who cares then you better stop and think about what you're doing with your life because if you gain if you win the war about whatever the thing is you're fighting for but you lose your soul you lost you know you didn't win So you said that the, uh, the concept or the idea of a circle, or a is on important to relatively relatively correct. My thinking is that that would actually be probably the most important thing. So I, I agree with you. If, if what I said sounded contrary to that, I recant what I said. What I was trying to say was, uh, the, the guy who's, the mechanic has an exemplar in his mind, and he's trying to instill it in reality. So, and so circularity matters because it's the exemplar that he has. And I think you're right, if he's got like an egg-shaped exemplar, it's going to be an awful mic like wheel, um, but it's but it goes further than that because the exemplar in his mind doesn't help him. It's not a thing that does work. Whereas God's grace does do work in our lives. Um, the blueprint doesn't build the building. You know, the the agent uses the blueprint to make the building, but the blueprint never picks up a hammer. And my idea is here is like, the idea of circularity is important, but it's not what picks up the hammer. The Lord is the Lord is our example. But he also picks up the hammer, so to speak. He also does the work in our life, unlike the Blueprint does. You know, I mentioned that philosophical puzzle about the incarnation, and I saw some of you go, yeah. And then I blew past the conclusion, like a solution to it. I didn't even offer one. Uh, and so I could say a bit about that. Wait, yes? <laughs> Why didn't you ask then? All these nods, yes, please. Uh, Here's, here's what I think of that. Remember the problem it goes like this. If he's divine, he's got these very fancy magnificent features. And if he's human, he's he doesn't have those. He's got like humdrum mundane human features. And nothing can have both the fancy features and the humdrum human features. Nothing can be both outside of time and inside of time. Nothing can be both omnipotent and limited in power. And so Since if Christianity's right, he's both, and nothing can be both, Christianity's not right. Now that would be a big bummer, right? (laughs) At least for me it would be. (laughs) So what to do? Well, I think of it like this. You You find a solution to this in the ecumenical councils of the church. The first seven ecumenical councils where they talk about Christ's natures. He's got two natures, a human one, and a divine one. It's one person. They say things like this a lot. They'll say that it's in his human nature that he hung on a cross and bled. And it's in his divine nature that he created the world and rules. And even as a baby, they'll say, Cyril says this in the Third Ecumenical Council even while still a baby, he was still co creator and co ruler of all creation with his Father and the Holy Spirit. Now, you think that, you think a baby ruling the world. Okay, thank you very much. But the idea here is this he's got two different natures. He's got all the stuff that a divine person has, and he's got all the stuff that a regular human person, you know, hair and fingernails and blood that circulates and a soul just like you have a soul and a heart that really beats blood around the body, just like you. He's got all that stuff just like you. So here's the idea. In what sense is Christ immutable, unable to be changed? In the sense that he has a nature, his divine nature which is unable to be like, you know, pushed or pulled, unable to be changed from being one way to being another. And in what sense is he mutable? In the sense that he's got a nature, just like your body's soul nature, that can be hung across, or can go from being one way to another. Now, he and only he fulfills the conditions for being both mutable and immutable because he and only he, as far as we know, has two natures. We don't know of anything else that has two natures like that and so he fulfills the conditions and nothing else could so it makes sense why we would think if it's immutable it can't be mutable it makes sense we would think that because we're typically not reasoning about the incarnation and in every other case where a thing only has one nature that nature will either, either be able to change or not and so for every other case like the father in heaven who's not incarnate and you and i who are not divine Every other case, it's going to be one or the other, and it can't be both. But once you add a second nature there, you can fulfill the conditions for both in virtue of having a nature that fulfills the conditions for one and a nature that fulfills the conditions for the other. For kind of a goofy analogy, imagine you've only ever known people with one hand. and you thought, well, if there's only one hand there, he can either be clasping something or not. You can't both clasp and not clasp something. But once you allow that there's, it's possible to have a thing with two hands, then a the thing can fulfill the conditions for clasping with one hand and not clasping with the other. Now, if you've never heard of a thing with two hands and you scoffed at the idea at the get-go, you think nothing can ever be a grasper and a non-grasper at the same time. But as long as it's possible to have two hands, it can do both. So likewise, as long as it's possible for Christ to have two natures, one divine and one human, then you can fulfill the conditions for being both. That's the idea, then. That's the way I like to think there's a solution, even in the church documents. It's not like we're making it up now. It's like they had it way back then. We're just rediscovering it and showing it. Other questions? Ah, yes. I know you mentioned the incarnation of the but we also mentioned the Trinity. I was wondering if about that Oh, man. Yeah. Which uh, Is there a particular thing you'd like me to talk about? Yeah, sure. So here's how the councils talk about the Trinity. I always refer back to the first seven councils because those are the councils of the Christian church that the East and the West both have. The Orthodox and the Catholics accepted and still accept these as unrevisably true statements of the faith. And many, very many confessional Protestants do too. Like the Lutheran confessions of faith, like the Book of Concord, will talk about these first seven ecumenical councils as teaching the truth about these dogmas as well. So I look for the broadest agreement, and I think you find it in those seven councils. Now, what do you find in those seven councils? You find the following, I don't know, five things. You find one, that there is a single God, so monotheism is true. There's only one of those things there. And they refer to the thing there's one of as the single divine nature or the single divine essence or sometimes we'll say godhead which is like an antiquated term but means nature so there's one of those things one divine nature and what are there three of well there are three persons in the godhead so you have that one nature had in some sense of had by three different people persons Furthermore, those persons aren't really the same thing counted three different ways. They're really distinct from each other. And you have to say that because only one of them suffered on a cross. You can't say the other two suffered on the cross. That's heretical according to the church. So you have the Father who's got his own specific feature of being the Father. You've got the Son who's got the feature of being begotten of the Father. None of the other divine persons are begotten of the Father. And he's got all those incarnational features too, like was born in Bethlehem and was um, carried the womb of Mary and all the rest. And then the Holy Spirit has, has his own features too. So that's the general view of it. Uh, all three of them are worthy of equal worship. They're on, they're on a par for what they are, their being is the same being. The trickiest question I know of here, so I I led with a question, right? Like, how do you explain how he's both God and man, even this argument? The trickiest question I know of here is the following one. You have these three things that are really distinct from each other, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. They're three persons, and they are not the same. You also have only one God there, and all three of those persons are God. Okay, hold on. Hold on. You got one God and also three persons and they're each God and they're not the same thing. How can you have one there and also three there that aren't the same thing as each other and still only one there and those three are also God? And you wanna sit down for a little bit when you say all that out loud. Here's how I think of that question. I Think of it like this. The conditions under which something counts as a God or as a human are the conditions of having a nature of a certain sort. So each of those three persons has a nature of a certain sort, the divine nature. Each of us has our own flesh and blood human nature. The conditions under which you have something of that type there are having a nature. Now, if those three different divine people, persons, have the same nature, they're going to count as one and only one God there because they all have one and the same nature. It's a sharing of a nature that's going on. There are a bunch of analogies people use here, and they're all good for one step, and then they get into problems when you really start scratching it. You you give it, and they're like, "Oh, I get it." Wait, and that's what always happens. Um, doesn't stop me from giving them. I'm just telling you, I'm disclaiming immediately. You will find 1,600 disanalogies for any analogy of the Trinity you find, and that's not surprising. It's not surprising at all that how God is isn't wholly represented in the world of like humdrum things we find with all that disclaimer in the background and like in flashing neon lights behind me people sometimes say like how could you have one and three there and the idea is you count in different ways there's one being and three persons good thank you please can you talk about the impassibility of God of about you know the mind, and suffering of the sun so yeah I'll relate that back then to the impassibility yeah good thank you so the the councils will say things like this they'll say that God is impassable and by impassable they mean unable to be causally affected like each of us is passable because each of us can be pushed out of our chair or at least you get on a chair but if you guys can put me in a chair then push me out if you wanted to all of us can be causally affected in some way or other the idea of the early church fathers is God is not like that. God isn't the sort of thing you can pull or push. You can't surprise or shock God. Um, there's a way in which you find something something makes you angry because it doesn't happen the way you wanted it to or like you didn't see it was gonna happen that way or things go contrary to your will in some important sense. In all those ways it's not quite the same for God. Like there's a sense sense in which God wills all of creation and what happens in creation. There's no sense in which he's surprised by any of it. It's not that he creates and he goes, Oh, did you guys see that coming? I didn't see that coming at all. So the idea is here that um, to be impassable is to not be causally affectable in that sense. And in fact at the Council of Chalcedon in 451, they kick out of the assembly of priests anybody who dares to say that God is passable, God is causally effectible. They're not talking about in the incarnation, they're talking about like, you know, like you said, the Godhead. They're talking about God's nature. It's unchangeable in that respect. So that's the idea that you find in the early church councils about about uh, God's ability to be affected by other things, like creatures. Thank you, guys.